Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thank you guys once again for joining the Nine Innings Podcast hosted by yours truly, Kevin Thompson, founder and CEO of Nine Innings Capital Group. Thank you guys for joining us. As I always say, subscribe to the channel. As I always say, go and get my book, MLB to CFP Live on Apple Books. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, go to uh, or email us at 9innings at 9icapgroup.com or go to our website, www.9inningscapitalgroup.com. Schedule an appointment or send your questions through the links there. <clears throat> if you want to listen to our podcast, you can go to iTunes or SoundCloud and type in 9innings Capital Group or subscribe to this channel, <clears throat> like I just mentioned, and listen to our video versions of our podcast on 9innings Capital Group through our YouTube channel. Today, we have a wonderful treat. Uh, but before we go there, thank you guys for the subscriber growth. We are getting uh, increased subscri subscriber growth every single month, so thank you for that. But today we have a special guest, Mike Fischotti of Integrated Capital Management. We are here to talk about the only thing that matters right now, which is the Federal Reserve, interest rates, and inflation. Let's get it. We have Mike Pichotti, Integrated Capital Management. Mike, thank you for joining the call today, my friend. Great to be here. Hey, how's everything going? I mean, how's the weather up there? I know we've had a couple of bad storms in our area here in the Fort Worth region, but uh, I'm sure you guys are, are, are kind of drying out from all the storms that we just had. Yeah, well, actually quite the opposite. And it's uh, been a rainy week here in southeastern Pennsylvania. So, uh, you know, if it rains anymore, uh, we might need an arc. Uh, yeah, it's been pretty wet here. Well, hey, mentioning rain and 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 getting and drying out, uh, that's exactly what the Fed's trying to do right now, especially with interest rates and the balance sheet runoff. Uh, we're, we're talking today about rising interest rates and balance sheet runoff. We're going to talk a little bit about the battle between uh, income and appreciation, and we're also going to talk a little bit about your tau strategy and tell us a little bit about that. But let's start with rising interest rates and the balance sheet runoff because I think this is very very important. Um, people are, we're, we're, we're expecting, I'm sure you're expecting the same thing, a 50 basis point increase uh, at the next Fed meeting here in May. Uh, it could be a little higher depending on where, what happens between now and then. Who knows what happens between now and then. But um, we also heard yesterday that $95 billion is going to be coming off the Fed's balance sheet month over month for the next, you know, several years, which is going to ultimately the $9 trillion balance sheet that the Fed has. Talk a little bit about rising interest rates and the and the power between the two, whether it be the Fed uh, removing stimulus from the economy in regards to the Fed balance sheet and rising interest rates trying to combat inflation. Yeah, I think so. All of them are obviously related to inflation uh, that's been above the Fed stated 2% target pretty consistently in the 6 to 7% range since last summer. Yeah. Uh, in, in the beginning, we heard the term transitory a lot, reflecting the Fed's belief that once the COVID supply world kind of returned to normal, that inflation would dissipate. And um, I, I think that's proving to be a false assumption, but only because of the time horizon over which we're kind of judging that claim. I think supplies will eventually improve and might help out, but that'll be into the latter part of 2023, leaving us really with 2024 some relief from. Um, in that inflation number. So um, 
if if you're going to solve for inflation um, from and and the the supply side is not an option, the only option you're really left with is slowing demand, and that's kind of what we're talking about with interest rate hikes and and uh, quantitative tightening. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a really nice way of saying that the economy is doing a bit too well and we needed to do a little less well. So <laughs> enter those into those interest rate hikes and not to be overlooked quantitative tightening. So that's kind of the breaking mechanism that they're uh, that they're using or planning to use. Now, I've heard a whole bunch of perspectives perspectives on this as it relates to interest rates. and They all kind of get tangled together. We really need to separate them and address address them individually. First is that in, inflation is very much a psychological variable. So does 25 basis points or 50 basis points or even 200 basis points or rate hikes really matter in the scope of things, especially for those of us that remember the 70s and 80s when rates were much higher, right? Yeah. So the, the answer is, well, yes and no, it, 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 it does matter, right? So in the historical context, rates are not high, but markets have priced in low rates into their assumptions for bonds and equity valuations yeah. and now need to adjust to those rates being less low and credit being more expensive. So even a small move does have, um, does it have a, an impact even if overall rates uh, re, uh, remain low. So the, the more important thing in all of this is that by hiking aggressively early, it uh, shows consumers that Jerome Powell really means business. So yeah. how does this help? So let me just pose a hypothetical question. If I say, Kevin, right. um, you're in the market for a car or whatever good or service that you want to buy. But if you buy it today, the price is going to be the stated price on the sticker. But if you wait a week or two, I'm going to charge you 25% more for that. What are you going to do? You're going to buy it immediately. You're going to buy it immediately, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, it, the inflationary psychology consumers have to accelerate those purchases really creates the reality that they're trying to avoid. So it's really important for the Fed to talk to tough talk early in their actions and then kind of back it up by actions to prevent this from spiraling and prevent people from actually accelerating those purchases, which is on market is telling us what is what the bond market is telling us that inflation Longer term shouldn't be an issue, but it is an issue uh, right now. The, the bad news is that it's also telling us that there's going to be a significant slowing, even kind of a recession. Now, we'll get some help from the base effects, right, which is the fact that inflation was high last year and it's calculated as a growth rate off of that number. So a high base, you know, gives you some relief this year. But other than that, I mean, we really need the hope to get a surprise and get some help from the supply side. Otherwise, uh, you know, I think we're for a bit of a, a grind here with both of those variables that you uh, that you mentioned. Yeah. So <clears throat> you mentioned that uh, the acceleration of purchasing. I'm on the I'm, I'm the opposite of that at this point because I was going to do some stuff for my house, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to wait wait for prices of lumber and all that stuff to come down, and I'll wait I'll wait 12 to 18 months. Most some people probably can't do that, but for me, I'm on the opposite spectrum of like I'll just wait let the prices come down and get this new. Uh, this this house extension done late at a later date, but you're absolutely right. right. It, it does it does accelerate a lot of the buying, and, and and but but what you're referring to is the people that actually need the goods and services today, in, in regards to that. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I noticed about in, in regards to interest rates, like you just mentioned, outside of just the buying and, and the acceleration of goods and services, uh, with income, 
income and appreciation. There's a huge battle right there. A lot of my clients are retirees. A lot of my clients are looking for yield. You guys do an incredible job in regards to getting yield for our clients, which is great. But there's a battle right now between, well, I call it the Tina effect, right? There is no alternative, right? So, so if, if, if there's a battle between, well, should I go to, to treasuries? Should I just go into equities? Where can I get some yield without taking a lot of risk? Uh, talk, to, talk, to me a little, talk a little through that, that battle and what are your clients seeing or what are your, some of the advisors that you're working with kind of asking for, for you guys to, to do for them to, to create that income? Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, it's a tough thing right now. What do you do with conservative investors? And I actually wrote a piece about that about a year ago. But I mean, the way we think about it is that the battle between income and appreciation isn't really as much of a battle as you think. It's really kind of like two guests attending the same party. Yeah. And yeah. one is there early and one is coming late, but they're both still going to attend that same party, right? So both stocks and bonds are impacted by the same thing, interest rates. Stocks just haven't processed that information yet, but make no mistake though, as rates move up, that's generally not a good thing for stocks. Now, we've survived recently because of how they've moved up, which I'll come back to more momentarily, but here's the connection. Any investment is just a present value calculation. So you have a bunch of cash flows that are gonna accrue to you as the owner of a company or a lender in the case of, a, in case of bonds, but you're gonna get those, cash flows in some cases, um, you know, not for a long time. So like the old saying goes, you know, time is money. And, and that's really true. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar 10 years from now. And then, you know, the reason is you could spend it and enjoy it, or you could save it and invest it and have more than a dollar 10 years from now. So the present value of a dollar paid in 10 years is something less than a dollar. How much less is called a discount rate and it's very important. So what rate should you use? Well, the, the discount rate should reflect how long from now you expect to get the cash flow and how much risk. So you shouldn't use a one month T-bill as your discount rate for a 20 year bond or for a stock, you'd use something commensurate mm. with that time frame, something, something longer term. So now the, the discount rate moves in the opposite direction of your rate of return but it's essentially the same thing. So how much money do I need today to have $100 in 10 years at a 10% rate of return? Well, the money today is your present value, but 10% is your discount rate. So the higher, your, the higher your return, the higher your future value when you're growing your money, but when you're discounting, the higher the return or the discount rate that you use, the lower the present value. Yeah. So that's why rates matter for stocks. So when rates rise, the present value declines. And this is what ultimately makes it really, really hard on stocks. Now we've survived today because most of the inter interest rate increases have been at short maturities. Rates have moved up a lot, but more so at the short end of the curve, not the relevant discount rate for stocks. So in an up and flat environment like we've had so far, Stocks do okay, like we saw in the first quarter, right? They only decline a couple of percentage points in the first quarter. But if the curve steepens as rates go up with long maturities increasing more than short, just like we've kind of seen in the last two days, yeah, that's bad for stocks. Actually, it's a really bad environment because you're moving the relevant discount rate. Now, the risk is here is that inflation stays high longer than expected, or the Fed doesn't act tough enough 
And then long rates rise pretty significantly, which you know ultimately something that we saw happen to Paul Volcker many times in the early 80s before he ultimately won that battle against inflation. So it brings up two points, like I mentioned before, the Tina, the Tina effect, where there is no alternative. So, and, and people believing that uh, equities are the best hedge against inflation. So let's tackle the second. Well, I know we're, we're kind of jumping into other questions here, but if people believe that, well, I need to beat inflation, I have to go somewhere. Bonds are not going to be it, and and all I hear is equities are the best hedge against inflation or commodities. So I mean, is that not a relevant statement? That, that uh, or psychology in regards to that? Kind of a misnomer. And I think we talked about this on one of your last podcasts yeah. that, I, that I was yeah. on. Um, and the, the misnomer being is that, you know, stocks are a quote unquote hedge against inflation, right? Re- really what they are, they're not, you know, they, to be a hedge when inflation's rising, that would imply that stocks do well and they don't, right? Um, stocks are a high returning asset that generally over time outpaces inflation, right? But a little bit of inflation is really, really bad for stocks. In particular, that valuation multiple, um, you know, does not remain high in even, you know, inflationary environments that are a little elevated, 4% or above, you typically don't see uh, valuation multiples much above 20 times times earnings, right? Which we are significantly above that that level today. So, I mean, what do you do? you know, our approach to that is, um, you know, we we see, we seek out cheap asset classes, right? Our belief is, if you're finding undervalued asset classes across the globe, that's a good first step in you know fighting any kind of environment because those asset classes have already discounted a lot of the information and the pain that many of the other asset classes haven't discounted. The other thing uh, is that you have to look for alternative sources of return, right? So con- consumers for years have relied on the traditional age-old 60-40 portfolio that leaned really heavily on U.S. stocks and bonds. And it's done exceptionally well for consumers over time, investment consumers over time. But um, uh, I I don't think you're going to be able to replay that here going forward because the problems that we're facing uh, with valuation overhangs are really specific to U.S. markets. Okay. So what is, so I guess now it goes back to my other question. What's the alternative? If we can't, if we can't go into equity, well, we can go into equities. Like you mentioned, over time, it's, it's a misnomer in regards to the hedge hedge uh, philosophy around that. But what's the alternative today? If you know bonds are going to go down and equities are going to go down in the same fashion, like they've done recently, right? They've they're kind of been correlated. So, so what what do you what do you guys think of saying that is the alternative investment? Well, so you know, bonds are certainly much better than they've been six months ago. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's true. <laughs> and the, the pain that we felt is kind of the byproduct of that, but they are better than they were six months ago. Uh, but in addition to buying the cheap asset classes, as you know, we're big fans of closed end funds. That's one of those alternative sources of return that we believe that we could kind of harness uh, to, you know, quote unquote, stack up building blocks, find small incremental sources of return that themselves might not be meaningful, but when you stack them up, together they they kind of become meaningful. So our approach to that is really kind of focusing on those two things, alternative sources of return, in our case, case uh, closed end funds and marrying those with, you know, the cheapest asset classes that we could find across the globe. Yeah, and cheap asset classes, we all know what that means, the value asset classes. And they and right. and, and value typically does well over a long period of time. Uh, usually does as well or better than growth. So you're absolutely right there. Um, you guys have a great 
a, a, a strategy that I was looking at for some of our clients is the Tau strategy. And I saw the performance there and it's been doing very, very well. So tell us a little bit about the Tau strategy and, and, and how it, tell me a little bit about its makeup and how it's performed over the last several years. Yeah. You, you know, Tau or Tice Alpha Opportunities is an extension of our very popular closed end fund strategy, Tice, which has done very well since its inception nearly six years ago, delivering a double digit rate of return on a portfolio that's only 40% stocks. And it has about two thirds of the risk of the S&P 500. Now, we, we haven't seen the latest rankings yet, but as of year end, we were number six out of 399 managers in our Morningstar peer group. So you know, um, to say it's done well, is you know, pretty much an understatement. Um, <laughs> Tau, uh, hey, Tau don't be little, modest. Don't be modest. You're on a podcast. Yeah, it's, no, it, it has. It has actually performed really well in this environment. Tau is a little different. Uh, it was designed to provide returns that are really commensurate with the historical averages mm-hmm. in an environment where it may be difficult to get returns that are like the historical averages. One that we we believe that we're ultimately facing today. So it's a little different than Tice in that half of the portfolio. Uh, half of the portfolio is in closed-end funds just like Tice, but the other half is basically a best ideas portfolio, a portfolio of those cheap asset classes that we were just uh, they were just talking about. So um, Tau has really had both sides carry the load. So in, 20 and tw- uh, tw- in 2020 and 2021, closed-end funds did very well as discounts narrowed and above average levels of income added to return. And you had our portfolios generally outperform their benchmarks by anywhere from 150 uh, basis points to almost 10% annualized in that up market. So, you know, really, really solid outperformance from those, those, uh, in those two up years. This year, what's really exceptional is that they've outperformed in a down market. And it's the undervalued asset side of the, uh, the equation that's really carrying the load. So, you know, as you can probably tell, we couldn't be, um, we couldn't be more pleased with how the strategies have actually worked out. Yeah, Tao has done very, very well. And uh, I'm looking to learn a little bit more about it as, as we start to, to migrate clients over to that. And we do appreciate everything you guys offer uh, from, from, a, from a portfolio management perspective. And thank you guys for, for all the knowledge and the pieces of, of information that you guys give us. I mean, it helps us explain markets to clients and it helps us uh, kind of push ideas off on each other so we can we, we can all be saying the same language or having the same language when we're having conversations with our clients. And I, I do appreciate that. Uh, I guess the last question, I know this is not on our talking points here, but um, from, from an interest rate perspective, I mean, are you guys seeing seven hikes, six hikes? I know I know we kind of got the dot plots and all that out there, but, but what are you guys seeing in regards to that and, and how are you guys investing ahead of, of or how's that going to impact your investing moving forward? Yeah, you know, I mean, we've been more focused lately rather than on the number of interest rate hikes, kind of where we see the kind of the terminal value of interest rates across the curve, right? So whether it's seven hikes, right? Because, you know, obviously it matters not only the frequency with which we're hiking, but how much, right? We're now talking about 50 basis points. And there's been some talk of even uh, more aggressive rate hikes than even, even 50 basis points, right? 75 or 100 basis points. Uh, but if you focus on... The terminal value rates, right? You know, stepping back, uh, we just had our first rate hike just a few weeks ago. Yeah. But the tightening actually started probably six months ago when the Fed started, you know, first started tough talking mm-hmm. that uh, that environment, right? So um, 
we've seen two-year yields move up 160 basis points so far this year. We've seen 10-year yields move up 80 basis points. And you now have them kind of cluster around 2.4, 2.5%, um, you know, in that kind of range. Our belief is that at least at that intermediate section of the curve, that we don't get much above 3%, 3 to 3.3%, somewhere in there. And unfortunately, uh, the reason that we don't think you're going to get much farther than that is I think somewhere along the way, you're going to see some sort of a market downturn, an equity market sell-off, uh, or whether, whether it's a recession, a formal recession or not, which is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP or not, right? Even if, even if you decelerate and stop just short of that technical definition of recession, where we started from 7% real growth rates, it's going to feel awful, yeah. right? That deceleration or even whether we tip into recession or not, all of these are going to put the brakes hard on the economy and they're going to put the brakes on uh, ultimately on, on inflation. And, um, you know, uh, that's why we don't think that rates have probably get much beyond that, you know, that 3.3% on a 10 year level. Well, let's just hope that Jerome Powell and all the other fed federal members will just be very uh, cognizant of alerting the market before they actually make those types of uh, adjustments, because what they've done a very, very good job of is uh, making it known on, on what they're thinking. And they, they're, they're very just, it keeps the market from from falling out of bed. And, and I agree. And, you I know agree what I mean? That. I mean, the last thing you yeah. want to say is, "Oh, we're going to raise a two hundred basis points." You're like, "What?" I mean, you, you should have. No, told and, us and I think that, like we talked about before, I think that tough talk is important, right? You're starting to hear more and more Fed governors come out and speak, uh, you know, really aggressively or tough talk that inflation number. I think it's really important. Absolutely. Hey, Mike, thank you for joining us today, man. We appreciate all the stuff that you guys do. Thank you for joining the Nineties Podcast. We appreciate your your knowledge and what you guys provide for our clientele. Uh, thank you guys for joining us as always. We appreciate your time. Again, don't go, don't hesitate to go to the website, www.98scapitalgroup.com. If you have any questions about the Tau strategy, you can always call contact your contact us so we can help you guys understand that strategy a little bit and learn a little bit about more about the integrated capital management uh, platform that we use here. But again, Mike, uh, anything else you would like to add before we sign off? No, you know, I, I think we covered quite a bit today. I uh, appreciate it. Hey, thank you guys for joining Nine's podcast. We appreciate your time. As you know, we're here to do what? Educate, empower, and engage. And that's what we did today. Stay humble and stay safe. <laughs>